This podcast is sponsored by Collins. High quality primary and secondary resources for both students and teachers. Collins will help you deliver a knowledge rich and ambitious geography curriculum. Take a look at their range of atlases, revision guides, and workbooks too. JogPod listeners get 25% off Collins Geography resources until the end of June 21. Simply head to collins.co.uk forward slash jogpod and enter the code jogpod at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there and welcome to another job pod. Today it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Tamsin Mather, Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of University College Oxford. Tamsin, your main research interests centre on the science behind volcanoes and volcanic behaviour. Um, and I, I read you aim to better understand volcanoes as natural hazards, but also as a key planetary scale process throughout geological time and vital for maintaining and perhaps drastically changing habitability and as a source of natural resources for us. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to me on JobPod today. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Um, it's taken us a while to get around to doing volcanoes, which is interesting really, because they're a fundamental fascination. Um, as I was doing a little bit of research and, and watching you on the Life Scientific and, and various other programmes. Um, I also dug up a quote from Oliver Goldsmith in his History of the Earth and Animated Nature. And it, it, I know it's a long time ago, 1881, but I just thought this was a fascinating couple of sentences. There are depths of thousands of miles which are hidden from our inquiry. The only tidings we have from these unfathomable regions are by means of volcanoes, those burning mountains that seem to discharge their materials from the lowest abysses of the earth. And as I was watching one or two of your presentations, you talked, I thought it was brilliant, peering into messages from the interior was one of the quotes that I, I, I took from you and getting a better understanding of the inner workings of the earth through looking at messages from volcanoes. And that's partly what you do is take messages from volcanoes. From prehistoric times, volcanic eruptions have aroused fear and inspired myths. And they've, they've, they've been in the past seen as the abode of gods, usually angry gods as well, to be honest. You've stood next to quite a few of these volcanic messages. So what's it like? What's it like being right next to an eruption? Well, it's uh, well, it's very awe-inspiring, and you can very much see uh, why volcanic eruptions have inspired these ideas of deities and myths. Um, there's a very deep sense of force and the power of the earth from standing next to a volcanic eruption. So I was going to choose an example, actually, of Mount of an eruption on Mount Etna, and this is back in 2006. Uh, part of the reason for choosing that example is because, of course, the Mediterranean area is the, the, the area that you know, great early human classical civilizations grew up. So actually, a lot of our earliest thinking about volcanoes, at least that which is written down, uh, comes from the Greeks and the Romans. Um, and there's some very wonderful texts 
Uh, some of them sort of thinking about um, them being the chimneys to great underground furnaces uh, and those types of ideas. And then, of course, the very useful texts like the accounts of Pliny uh, on the AD 79 eruption uh, that destroyed Pompeii and Herculaneum in the, in the Bay of Naples from, uh, from Mount Vesuvius. Um, but back in 2006, I think this one sort of particularly stands out because I started off, it was just after I'd moved to Oxford and started the, the job here. And I, I got up early in the summer morning, it was July, um, and, uh, and, and walked to the bus station through kind of leafy Oxford. Uh, I think I went through the university parks and it was, it was all summer and greens. Got on the bus, got to the airport, took a, few, took a, a couple of flights. And by that evening, I was standing next to the eruptive vent on the, uh, on the side of Mount Etna. And everything was black and red um, the ground was throbbing with, uh, with the explosions. It was a fire fountaining type of eruption uh, with a lava flow snaking beside me. Um, and of course, the stink of gas. Uh, and, uh, and we didn't get too close, but rocks, rocks flying out. And the contrast really couldn't have been, uh, the contrast of that day really couldn't have been starker. Have you ever been in danger next to a volcano? Have you ever felt, oh, uh, I've gone too far here? I try to be very cautious, which might seem like a contradiction in terms for a volcanologist, but I always listen very carefully to the local scientific advice uh, about, uh, about the safe places to go and how long to, to spend there and try and minimise the length of time I spend in any place that makes me feel uncomfortable. I certainly have felt uncomfortable, uh, but but generally I've been uh, I've I've been relatively confident that I am okay. And I guess an example might be working at the foot of Santiago volcano in Guatemala, and we were collecting samples from some uh, lava flows uh, that have flowed away from the volcano. But the volcano was uh, was towering above us, um, and a, a few times every hour an explosion would, uh, would, 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 would break forth from, from, the, from the volcanic dome, from the, the lava pile at the top of the volcano. Um, and a relative, it's a relatively small explosion, but when you're under it, it's quite impressive. And, um, and it would also send pyroclastic flows down the side of this, this cone. This is, um, and you just see them disappear uh, behind this kind of headlet, this, this, uh, this hummock in the land. And what we knew from the maps, of course, is there was a deep hummock and then the flows would have to get up the other side of this dip. Uh, and it was well out of the, the danger zone that had been defined by the local, the local scientists. So we, we, we had taken very careful advice, but you couldn't see this. So every time it happened, I did. I, did. <laughs> I was staring up at it, just going, you know, I trust the science, I trust the scientists, and this did not look like a big one, but... Uh, but, but I, I did at times feel really quite nervous. And I, was, I, was, uh, I enjoyed my day working there, but I was, I was also pleased to hike out back through the jungle. I, it took me a long time before I went to see a volcano. Uh, and so I, I think I must have been in my 40s before I actually got close to one. And it's interesting, the number of stereotypes that people have about volcanoes, which I'd like to talk to you about later on, because I've seen comments about the, the people standing next to the eruptions in Iceland at the moment and getting really close. And people are expecting them to get uh, blown up, I think. But actually, there are very different types of volcanic eruption. And uh, so some you can get close to and others you'd really not want to be anywhere near. 
yeah, when absolutely. the eruption's going to go off. I, I see it as a bit of a fundamental fascination. I've, I've loved it every time I've gone to one since, although it did take me a long time to go. Uh, but you haven't been a, a... You didn't start as a volcanologist, did you? you? You weren't... It wasn't something that was a burning fascination, right, from being very young. You didn't think, that's it, I'm going to be a volcanologist. You sort of moved into it in a... Yeah, it was... Almost a, by accident. It was a little bit... Uh, um, by accident in the end although if I look back on it it kind of makes sense so I did a uh, I did science A levels um, and and then did uh, well I did natural sciences degree uh, in Cambridge which you you get to choose a number of different sciences in your early years but I never did any of the geology streams I nearly did but I got persuaded out of it by by one of the one of the teachers there who persuaded me to do uh, material science for a year instead so I um, finished off my degree doing uh, a, a master's degree in chemistry um, and specialising in, in studying uh, the, using computers to study the, the, the trace of organic chemistry reactions. So, so really a long way from volcanoes. And then ended up having, I, I, knew, I thought about doing PhDs in, in chemistry um, right, right then. But I kind of had this instinct that I, I didn't want to do something that was just lab based. I really enjoyed lab work. But I wanted to do something about the world around us um, and on, on a big scale as well as a small scale. Um, I've always really enjoyed being outdoors. It's, uh, I've always enjoyed uh, doing active, active things like sailing and hiking um, and also very much in, you know, enjoyed looking at the world um, around me and, and thinking about how it came to be. So after a couple of years out of science, uh, I started. I applied to environmental chemistry and geology programs to do PhDs, and I applied back to Cambridge to a different department, which I didn't really know. Um, and I was. Uh, I, I came in to to have some meetings, and actually got very inspired by an ocean chemistry PhD that was on offer. Uh, and having a background of being being a sailor just made some sort of sense. When it came to filling in the form, I had to put a second choice project down. And having come from a chemistry degree and not done any uh, any uh, sciences uh, as an undergraduate, there were most of the titles of the PhD projects. I didn't really know some of the words. There were all these sort of mystic words, uh, P waves and, uh, and plagioclase, all these things I didn't, I, I didn't really feel comfortable with. And then I saw this one, which was the tropospheric chemistry of volcanic plumes. And I, I recognised all the words in that title. And I'd been to a volcanic eruption when I was visiting a friend on Reunion Island uh, back in 1998 and had been really inspired by it. So, so I put that title down. And then when it came to doing the interviews and chatting with the, the, different, uh, the different people, I, 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 got, I got really bitten by, uh, by the, the volcano bug. Uh, and I really felt that I actually also really felt I could bring something distinctive to that PhD because I had this different background and I'd studied some atmospheric chemistry in my undergraduate degree. That was how I ended up becoming a volcanologist. And that led you to Nicaragua. That's right, isn't it? Because uh, you studied the Masaya volcano then. Yes, that's right. So that was my first uh, research trip, my research, research field work as a, as a PhD student. Yes, I've seen a photograph of you on top of the volcano with a, with a gas mask on. I, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, but I think you had a gas mask and various different um, recording pieces of recording equipment while you were up there. Yep, that sounds right. <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't erupt particularly at the time when you were there, did it? So Messiah is uh, one of a sort of 
class of volcanoes that's it, it depends a little bit how you define eruption um i guess so messiah tends to do these what we call some open vent degassing since 1993 this is the the latest of these uh, degassing crises uh, as, as sometimes they're called uh, a there's been a kind of a hole a mouth at the summit of the volcano which in messiah's case really isn't very high it's only uh, about you know it's a it's not a, a not, not a massive edifice you could actually drive right up to the top of it which is one of the things that makes it makes it a, a really useful place in terms of being able to kind of do science doing, doing science and running measurements without having to hike all the equipment in uh, but it has this this open mouth, sometimes uh, a few of them, uh, within the summit crater, which is just uh, pushing out uh, loads of gas and particles into Earth's atmosphere every single day of the year. And this has been going on since 1993. So overlaying on that, you get some variations in activity. So you, you can get some explosions, for example, that could be really hard to predict and can throw rocks a little way out of the crater. There have been a, a few of those in recent times. And you also get variations in terms of the level of the magma, the liquid rock within the volcano. So when I was first there in 2001, you could see a kind of eerie crater glow uh, deep inside the, the vent uh, at night. But you, um, and you could hear the magma sloshing around when, uh, when, when the wind died, but you couldn't really see it. Um, and actually, the last time I went there in 2017, uh, it had changed, uh, changed, changed really a lot. And the kind of bottom of the, the crater kind of fallen in and revealing the, the top of this, this magma conduit, this sort of column, this tube of magma sloshing around like some sort of ferocious <laughs> fiery ocean. Um, and rather than the subtle crater glow, it was now, now the, whole, the whole kind of top part of the volcano was lit up at night. Uh, by the glow from this 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 lava um, uh, coming coming right up to the surface, so it was kind of like being around an absolutely the sort of glimmer you get from an absolutely enormous kind of you know, autumn bonfire. If I asked some of my Y sevens to draw a classic volcano, they would they would do the stereotype. They'd, they'd draw a gigantic cone shaped mountain, and there'd be a hole on the top in the middle that you could look down and you could see a huge pool of lava. But they're not all like that. And you've just said, here's one that you can drive up. There's a spectrum of volcanic activity, isn't there? From quite non-explosive volcanoes to very explosive Plinian eruptions. Could you talk us through the, the differences? At A-level specs, students would expect to know the difference between all of these types of eruption. So uh, you're kind of touching on two really, really fascinating things there. It's the shapes that volcanoes take. Uh, and then the types of eruption that you get. But those two things are, of course, interrelated. But but there's uh, there's always the, I guess there's there's always exceptions to the rule as well when it comes to those interrelations. Um, but if we think about the type of eruption that you get, we often kind of talk about how explosive a an eruption is. And you've talked you you were mentioning earlier about lava flows and the lava flows uh, in the current Icelandic eruption, um, and those lava flows aren't very explosive at all. You were sort of talking about the fact that people can stand relatively near the foot of them and they are moving forward, but they're moving forward at a very comfortable pace that you would be able to 
uh, outrun easily, perhaps even you know, outstroll easily uh, in terms of the pace of, of flow of the lava. So that's kind of one of the examples right at the low end of explosivity, if you like. Of course, with lava flows, you do have to be a bit careful um, because there was an example on Etna a few years back. I think they had a BBC correspondent there where the lava flow was flowing over um, some uh, snow or ice field. Um, and the heat of the, you know, you still got, it's, the lavas are still very hot. And so you can easily, if you if it goes over groundwater or, or, or ice or snow, you can flash boil. You can really, really quickly boil that water. And that itself can give you an explosion. So, you, you know, our lava flows still definitely have hazards associated with them. But the types of lava flow um, that, that move like that tend to be associated with the, the less viscous end of magmas. So one of the really key controls on how explosive uh, an eruption might be is about how sticky or, or viscous a magma is. So roughly speaking, the stickier the magma, uh, the harder it is for the gas that's dissolved in it to get out of the magma without causing a big ruckus. Um, so it's a bit, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's a little bit like, you know, if you, if you, have, a, if you have a Coke bottle and you, you don't shake it up and you open it nice and slowly, it just gently fizzes. Uh, and that's kind of your low explosivity end of, of magmas because magmas have water and carbon dioxide and other gases dissolved in them under pressure deep within the earth. Now, if you go to the other extreme, you shake your coat bottle up um, and, uh, and then you just open it really, really quickly. Uh, I know on some field trips, people like to do this as a joke to each other. They kind of get a can of drink, shake it up and then put it to one side and then hand it to some, some poor unsuspecting person who opens it and it goes everywhere. Uh, but if you do that, you shake it up and open it quickly, then, then you can get the whole thing overflowing and, and going everywhere. So it's a little bit similar. Uh, it's not a perfect analogy, as I say, but there's, the, there's something similar going on with volcanoes. So if you have a nice runny magma with not too much gas in it that can, 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 and the bubbles can move through the magma and get out um, safely, then you can get less explosive eruptions. If you've got a really sticky magma that holds the bubbles in it and the bubbles can't move and, and get out, and then it rises up from deep within the earth really, really quickly then that gives you, uh, that, that can potentially give you the really, really explosive eruptions, uh, like the Plinian eruptions or the Mount Pinatubo eruption in, in 1991, for example. Now, those types of, uh, of lava are then associated with, um, with different plate margins. Yes, broadly speaking, you tend to get the sticky magmas at the subduction zones. So you can get less sticky. So Messiah, for example, is, is, is a basaltic volcano mainly at the moment, uh, mainly in, the, in its history as well. So basalts tend to be the, these runnier, less sticky, less viscous magmas. And that's in a subduction zone. Um, but then uh, other subduction zone volcanoes, the magma takes a bit longer to get to the surface. So it has a bit more time to change. It has a bit more time to become stickier. Um, and it focuses the, the dissolved gases into it as well. Uh, and that's when you can get re the, really, the really, really explosive eruptions. Um, and the reason you tend to get those in subduction zones is because often if you've got a subduction zone, you've got uh, uh, the magmas are, are coming up through thicker continental crust often, rather than at um, mid-ocean ridges, they're, they're coming up through thinner oceanic crust and you've got that oceanic crust splitting apart. So you've just got uh, you've just got less 
less of a journey time, if you like, or less of a process for the magmas to get from where they're generated. So when you melt the mantle, you get basalt um, and you've just got less time for that basalt to get changed, if you like. And the second reason in subduction zones that you get these stickier magmas um, is related to the fact you have an input of water into the mantle in the subduction zone with the downgoing slab. That changes the kind of the chemical pathway that the magma takes in terms of the different crystals that can form um, and, and other things. And it actually adds more dissolved gas to the, to the magmas as well. So it's that that leads to different shaped volcanoes. And, and we could probably do a, a guess where the volcano comes from then, could we? I, I'm, I might be oversimplifying this, but if I gave you five or six that were cone-shaped and five or six that were much more shield volcanoes and then gave you some locations, would, would you be relatively certain about where you're going to locate those then? Well, I think the... the, the uh, I. The, the kind of, uh, so we talk about shield volcanoes and strata volcanoes, um, and the strata volcanoes are the kind of pointy ones, and the shield are the much broader ones. So the sort of classic shields are the sort of Hawaiian volcanoes, for example. And the, uh, the sort of rough rule of thumb goes is because you've got these runnier magmas, they, they basically kind of run out further, and you get this, this, the, these, these more shield like, uh, flatter types of, uh, types of volcano. Not to say they aren't massive, though, I mean, they, they really build up to a huge height. I think the complication you have to remember is if you get a really explosive eruption, it can also blow the top off a mountain. So I think this is why I wouldn't want to take your challenge in particular without a bit more context. Um, <laughs> okay. Because, um, because if you, you know, you, you can change the shape of a mountain a lot by blowing the top of it. Uh, and that can actually give you something that kind of almost looks, uh, looks kind of wide and broad because you just, you know, you've blown a big crater in the earth. And I guess this is sort of also coming on to something we might talk about later, which is caldera forming eruptions and that hollow out the, the insides of the earth. And then you get collapse associated with the, with the volcanic eruption as well. Well, the first volcano I went to was um, Santorini. So Good choice. Is that, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating no, trip onto the island as well. It's a beautiful place. It is. It's, it's, it's an astounding place. And the, I, as I said, I'd never been to a volcano before, so it was so exciting, first time. And the, the chap said to me, put your hand down here. And I nearly cooked my fingers. Mm. I, it was so hot. Am I right that that was possibly, the, the huge eruption that occurred there was possibly the one that also devastated the Minoan civilization? This is a very interesting point. So the Minoan civilization was, was centred on the island of Crete. So Santorini is in the Aegean Sea. Um, and, uh, and it's got lots of wonderful sort of myths that swirl around it, like the kind of uh, King Minos and then the Minotaur and, uh, and, the, and the labyrinth and all these wonderful things. Um, so we, we, do, we, we do have a mass. There was definitely a Minoan, uh, civil, uh, Minoan, a Minoan town on, on, on Santorini, uh, the town of Akrotiri, uh, which was buried by the uh, Bronze Age, the late Bronze Age eruption of, of, of Santorini about 3.6 thousand years ago. So we have, um, we have a, a, an approximate coincidence between the demise of the Minoan civilization and the eruption of Santorini. But I think it's still difficult to draw a direct causal link 
because the main centre of the civilization was not on Santorini, it was on Crete. There certainly would have been some impacts in terms of the, uh, the, the Minoan civilization there on Crete. I'm sure they had some ash falling over them, whether it was enough ash to kind of cause any problems with agriculture uh, or not is, is, is kind of a, a point of, it, it's possible. Um, it's possible that there might have been some damage to, they were, they, to their fleet. They were um, a trade-based civilization. They were, they were very, so their, their naval presence was very important to them. Uh, but I think our, our best evidence at the moment is that there were sort of se- at least several hundred years after the eruption of the, uh, of the uh, volcano and the demise. So I think it was probably part of a much uh, wider tapestry of politics and the sort of evolution of civilization in, in that area. But, uh, but it's certainly a very intriguing eruption for many different reasons. You mentioned earlier about um, the gases that come out, and it was it was certainly smelly when I went up there. Um, a sulfurous sort of bad eggy smell, really. And as I saw the pictures of you with a gas mask. We didn't have any gas masks. They obviously decided that we were safe enough going up there as <laughs> just as, as holiday makers wandering around. But what do volcanoes produce then? What what are the what's the the concoction that comes out? Well, it's really a, a sort of heady chemical cocktail. Uh, interestingly, actually, I've never worn a gas mask on Santorini myself because uh, I don't. Um, it, it's mainly carbon dioxide coming out of the vents of the Kameni Islands at Santorini, which isn't too isn't too smell isn't too smelly, um, and obviously there's a lot of carbon dioxide in the background atmosphere. Uh, but where you do see me wearing a gas mask is uh, is particularly when you get the, the the sulfurous gases because they are very smelly and can really irritate your lungs. Um, but the the main gas that comes out of volcanoes is is water. So uh, so kind of explosive behaviour um, that we see from volcanoes is mainly driven by the dissolved water in the magmas. It's the is the is the dominant gas in there. But of course, our atmosphere has a lot of water in it already, and also really variable amounts of water. I mean, uh, you know, look outside on a, a rainy day, and it's uh, it's it's very plain to see how much water there could potentially be in our atmosphere. Often, the second most aband- abundant gas is carbon dioxide. Um, and again, uh, it's not very smelly, and there's a lot of it already in our background, our background atmosphere. Uh, but it it is it, certainly abundant in volcanic plumes, and can also seep out in a way like so on the Kameni Islands at Santorini. There's a lot of carbon dioxide seeping out through the ground in a in a kind of covert fashion, just seeping up through the soil. You can't really see see much uh, much sign of it unless you have special instruments. But then often the next most abundant are the sulfur gases. So this is what you'll have, you'll have smelt. You've got your, your classic bad egg smell, which is uh, hydrogen sulfide. Uh, and then sulfur dioxide, which is often the dominant uh, chemical species in high temperature plumes, at least. Um, and that, can, that smells a little bit more like burnt matches. So you've got, uh, as yeah. I say, it's a part of the, the wonderful bouquet that you will have experienced uh, in, your, in, your <laughs> volcanic ex- in your volcanic adventures. Um, then we have more minor, more minor um, gases like uh, hydrogen chloride, hydrogen fluoride, pretty nasty acidic gases. Uh, and, um, and then lots of more minor, more minor gases um, that, uh, that, you know, really there's, there's, there's a lot of different things that are going out there. But within that, if we've got an explosive 
um, volcanic eruption going on. We've also got some ash in there as well. So this is the pulverized rock. This is you know, silicate rock uh, that's been broken up uh, in the, in the, as, as the magma shatters. Um, and so that's the sort of brown smudge uh, that you might see from the, from the side or from a satellite image uh, trailing off with the wind. Mm. And then it's also worth mentioning that you get uh, what we call aerosols. And these are very fine, um, fine kind of uh, water-based particles, little, little tiny droplets in the plume. And they're often, they can be seeded on little ash particles uh, or they can just be made from, from basically sulfuric acid, uh, which is one of the oxidation products of, a, of, of the sulfur gases that you get. Um, and you can get this fine haze that you see being blown away from the volcano as well. I wonder if I'm conflating too, because Mount Tady was certainly smellier than Santorini. Yeah. That, that might well be so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's interesting that they're, that it's different. I, I would just want to check something out with you because um, I've seen the term volcanic plume and you've used it a couple of times now. And I've seen it applied to both the gases and materials that come out of the volcano, ejected from the volcano. But there's also the rising thermal of hot magma in the mantle. So I'm not sure about the term volcanic plume, eruption plume, and mantle plume, if I was trying to explain them to a, an A-level student, are they different or is it the same word? Uh, I guess it's just a word that describes the, the, the shape of something and the process of, the, uh, of something. So both of them are, ri are rising to some degree, at least with convection. So hotter material rising up within cooler material around it. So, so it's a descriptive term. The term plume just, just uh, it, it means it means something rising up within another medium uh, under convection. In that, uh, it, it, and and they often have a sort of characteristic shape with a sort of billowing nature and some degree of turbulent flow. But uh, but so the key difference is really volcanic plume. We're normally talking about if we're talking volcano, we're normally talking about something on the surface. So, in our environment, if you like. Uh, and a mantle plume, we're, we're talking about uh, hot, uh, hot, hot mantle rock rising through cooler mantle rock uh, deep within the earth. Oh, that makes, yes, that's clarified. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Now then, the gases, uh, it, interestingly, you wouldn't be monitoring if they didn't tell us something. So what do they tell us and how do they change over time? Well, there's there's lots of different things they tell us that I could probably <laughs> <laughs> could probably fascinate you for hours on this subject. So let me just uh, <laughs> pick a few. Um, I, so the deep within the earth, all the gases are held dissolved in in the magma. So it's again back to our coat bottle. If you buy a uh, if you buy your coat bottle from your supermarket, it's not got bubbles in it. And that's because the 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 liquid inside the bottle is under pressure. And it's, say, it's the same with the magma. So deep within the earth, it doesn't have any bubbles of gas in it. It's free of bubbles. And then if it starts to rise up through the earth, the pressure drops on it. Like, it's like you um, yeah, dive into the bottom of a swimming pool, you start to feel a bit of the water pressure pushing in on your ears and, uh, um, uh, and, and you, you, can, you, know, you, can, you can sort of feel the weight of the column above you. And then as you rise up, you release that pressure. So it's the same for the magma deep inside the earth. Only many, you know, 
orders and orders of magnitude greater because rock is a lot denser than water. So the, the magma starts to rise up towards the Earth's surface and the pressure drops on it. Um, and that's like, you know, beginning to open your Coke bottle. So the, the pressure drops and the, the, uh, the liquid can't dissolve as much gas anymore. So bubbles start to form. Uh, and the first, because rather than with your bottle of Coke, you just got carbon dioxide dissolved in there, carbonated drinks, you just got carbon dioxide. With a magma, we've talked about all the different gases you've got dissolved in your magma. You've got water, you've got carbon dioxide, you've got sulfur dioxide, just to pick three. So the, the cunning thing with, with magma is that they all come out of solution at different pressures. So the deepest gas that tends to come out of solution is actually your, your carbon dioxide. So the first bubbles you form, still relatively deep within the Earth's crust, will be carbon dioxide. Um, and then as you rise, you'll start getting water and sulfur dioxide joining the carbon dioxide in those bubbles, but, uh, but, but uh, uh, at shallower depths. So if you're sitting at the top of Mount Etna, for example, uh, and you're monitoring your, your like, ratio of carbon dioxide to sulfur dioxide coming out of the top of the volcano. Um, if a new batch of magma arrives kind of deep within the volcano itself, what you might see is you might see a little kick in the carbon dioxide to sulfur dioxide ratio. So you might see an increase in the carbon dioxide compared to the sulfur dioxide because you brought this new batch of juicy gas rich magma deep into the volcano and it's released its carbon dioxide, which has found its way out through the, through the top of the system. But the sulfur dioxide is still sitting happily in the magma. Um, so you might, you might, I mean, you'll be looking at other monitoring streams as well, but if your other monitoring streams are looking, um, as it, you know, are showing signals also, that might be a good moment to say, okay, something's changed. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to think about what's gonna happen next. Um, and then what you might see is you might see uh, as the magma rises further up, you might see that ratio dropping down because now the sulfur dioxide has started to come out of the magma and be released at the top of the volcano. What you might expect to see at the same time would be a, a big increase in the, in the total amount of sulfur dioxide, which is something else we can also measure coming out of the volcano because the magma is now coming into the shallow system. And this is all part of the clues that we use. Uh, to try and kind of take the pulse, if you like, of the volcano and work out what's going to happen next. I remember teaching about Mount Pinatubo, which you mentioned earlier, because it happened while I was teaching. That shows how long ago it was when I was in the classroom. But um, that was fascinating because I, I got the impression from what I was reading, at least at the time, that that was about the first time that scientists really began to better understand and move people out by reading the messages of what was occurring there? It was certainly a success story. I mean, I think there had been uh, previous success stories as well. Um, there was still there was still loss of life, but not nearly as much loss of life as there could be. Um, and there were lots of different signals uh, and, uh, and things that uh, that pulled together there. Actually, interestingly, with Pinatubo, I think in terms of the gas flux, you had a big increase in the sulfur dioxide gas flux. Um, and then as the system really pressurised, it kind of sealed itself up in the just before the really big eruptions got going so actually you had a big drop it you had a drop in the gas flux just before the eruption if i remember the data correctly the the coverage was huge it's, it's the, the second biggest isn't it the second biggest in the 20th century 
I think, second biggest eruption. Mount Novorupta in Alaska was, I think, the biggest. And I remember talking to my students about it and saying that um, it covered an area of, a, I think, 1,500 square miles with five centimetres of ash, which is huge. And I told mine, well, if, if they'd gone off in Manchester, because we were in Sheffield at the time, that would have reached us. And that was the first time that they got an impression of the size and scale of it. I think their misconception was that it just happens around the volcano and that's about the only bit. But actually it had a huge impact locally, but it also had an impact on a wider scale and then an impact on a planetary scale, which was pretty immense. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting thing. And I think actually since the Earth, like the Yerkut eruption uh, back in 2010, uh, probably people in the UK have had a little bit more of an understanding about how distant volcanic eruptions can impact. <laughs> I think that was quite the uh, the the Earth uh, eruption. I mean, it wasn't it was nothing like an ash blanket, but I was actually able to collect some shards of ash which we could look at under the microscope um, and such like from our Velux windows here in Oxford. <laughs> that was a, that was really quite a different type of field work for me. <laughs> I haven't really picked up the sort of relationship between ice and the volcano, which you talked about flash boiling, because I think if I, when I was teaching it, I'd have, I'd have probably suggested that Iceland being on a, a plume and on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge would have relatively benign volcanic eruptions, which is what it generally does have, and not computed the impact of that water on the eruption, which which was huge. Yes, you can. Um, so, I mean, Iceland is it? It's a rifting volcano above the the ocean surface. Um, so there is there's some analogs with some of the volcanoes I work on with in East Africa. And actually, at these volcanoes, it's interesting. You can get these these runny basalts coming out, uh, and then also these very uh, these very sticky evolved magmas as well. So you do get. Uh, you do you you do do get these explosive eruptions as well. And of course, with Arthur Yerkut, the um, the involvement of the glacier uh, really made things uh, even more uh, exciting and interesting. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was was just about the the impact of volcanoes on the Earth over deep time. I, I watched your Darwin College lecture, and you were talking about the impact of volcanoes on extinction events and um, and catastrophes and and the evolution of life on Earth in general. And I knew the theory of the, the meteorites and I've read about the, the volcano's impact. And, I, and I, I've, I've looked at um, the atmosphere across, the impact of the atmosphere, of, of volcanoes on the atmosphere and, and the impact on sunsets and that sort of thing. But I hadn't, I hadn't really computed its impact over time. I, I, just talk us through a little bit about how those volcanic eruptions over time have, have impacted on, on life and on the, the atmosphere? Well, I think it's really important to remember that the that, that Earth is capable of types of volcanic activity or scales of volcanic activity that we, we haven't seen in historic times. So we don't, uh, we don't really have uh, a clear record of them, apart from the geological record. So one example of this type of event, uh, this type of volcanic event, is actually these things called large igneous provinces. 
So you have to uh, take your mind away from thinking of an individual volcanic eruption and the impacts of an individual volcanic eruption. What these large igneous provinces are, are um, a long periods of heightened volcanic activity in a particular area of the world. And they're, they're, they're probably related to the mantle plumes, the hot, the hot areas and the mantle upwelling from, from deep within that then cause all this, 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 this prolonged period of volcanic activity at the surface. So what you, what you get is you get um, a series of relatively, well, each individually on their own would not be a huge eruption. They'd be eruption a little bit like the, the Holleran eruption in Iceland uh, a few years back. Um, a rather slightly slightly more vigorous version of that, very very much more like the the Larky eruption um, back uh, in the 1700s in Iceland, for example. And what they what you can see on the planet, uh, surface of the planet now, these enormous stacks of lavas. So an example is the Deccan traps in India. Um, the most recent of these is the Columbia River basalts. Um, that are over in, uh, in North America, not that far from, for example, the city of Portland. Um, and you just get this layer upon layer of lava flow. Uh, and these things last for about a period of approximately a million years. So it's quite a okay. long period of time in Earth history, although Earth also does have a long history. But what you have is you have sort of a really significant increase in the amount of, of volcanism going on on the planet during that time, because you have these, these, these eruptions, each of them lasting maybe a few years, maybe as much as a decade, and then there might be a pause, and over a really big footprint on the surface. Um, and the thing that you were mentioning there that you were getting at is when people have dated these different provinces, so for example, uh, I mentioned the Deccan in India. We've also got an enormous area of Siberia covered in these this trap topography, this, uh, this these piles of, of volcanic lava flows. And we have other ones that have been torn apart by plate tectonics. So the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, which now is in Africa, uh, South and North America, because it was associated with that opening of the Central Atlantic, um, just to give you a few. And people have dated these rocks and then I've noticed the fact that they coincide in the geological record with these, these big biological overturn events, so these mass extinction events. So you talked about the Anne Cretaceous, which is the kind of poster child for mass extinction events because yes. uh, the dinosaurs <laughs> died out, and, uh, and, and it's the most recent one uh, as well. Um, and then, and that's associated in time with the Deccan traps. But you've also mentioned the fact that the Chicxulub impact hit the planet about the same time. So you've got that complexity there where you've got two really bad things happening. And the poor old dinosaurs um, didn't stand a chance. And, uh, and we got this big biological overturn, which actually, uh, in a way, sets the scene eventually for, 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 uh, for us to end up um, where we are right now. Uh, but you have... Uh, other coincidences in the geological record. So I mentioned the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, uh, and that actually coincides with the the End Triassic mass, mass extinction, which is the one, the one uh, that bit further back uh, from the uh, from the End Cretaceous, although it's uh, seven hundred million years further back. 
Um, and then the Siberian traps that I also mentioned coincides with the, the biggest mass extinction in Earth history, which is the end Permian mass extinction. So people have noticed this for many, many decades. The, 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 this, this association was, uh, was picked out many, many decades ago now. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing here is to work out what role this heightened volcanism had in terms of changing the ecosystems uh, and causing, the mass ex causing these mass extinction events, which actually changed the face of biology on our planet. Uh, that's part of what I'm working on at the moment. And so we kind of draw threads together from lots and lots of different directions. And what, uh, one, one way we go about it is studying present day volcanic eruptions and looking at what comes out uh, and what the local environmental effects might be. And then another way we go about it is looking at the geological record and trying to look for, for signals of these volcanic eruptions in the, in the geological record to kind of tease out cause and effect more effectively. You talked there about present day volcanic eruptions. I had a look and uh, a, a couple of days ago, there were 45 erupting currently. I don't expect that's changed. That was on the Volcano Discovery website, but they're all over the place. I suppose they're generally relatively inaccessible during an eruption. And, and if you do make a mistake, you get like those scientists on Mount Unzen in Japan and uh, you get caught out and killed. So. How do, you, how do you monitor all of these? How do scientists keep a track of the, all of the eruptions? Well, uh, as you say, there's, there's, there are a lot of different volcanoes and there are a lot of different uh, volcanic situations. So some of it will depend on how safe it is to approach them, to study them directly. Some of it actually also will depend on the, um, the kind of resources that you have in country. So some countries put a lot of, are able to put a lot of resources into monitoring their volcanoes, uh, and others others less so. Um, so the you know there are several techniques that, that are kind of the bread and butter for volcano observatories in terms of monitoring their volcanoes. So one of those would be seismometers. So putting seismometers on the ground, and roughly speaking, the more seismometers you have, the better. And you want to get them in a circle around the volcano or uh, get coverage. Um, so that you can locate your earthquakes better. Um, so some volcanoes will have tens of seismometers in a network all around them, uh, listening basically for, 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 for little tremors that might tell us that, that magma is moving. So when rock breaks, it, uh, it, it causes these very small tremors. So it's nothing like a kind of, you know, a, a, big, uh, uh, a, a big destructive earthquake, although it can, um, can cause local destruction, uh, but, uh, but causes these little tremors uh, when the rock breaks or when gas moves as well, you get this sort of humming noises that you could pick up as well. So I say seismology is one of our, our, re you know, our real go-to techniques and probably the most, uh, the, the most ubiquitously used techniques to, to monitor volcanoes. But then going back to actually looking at how much gas is coming out is, is really important as well. And also things about how the volcanoes are changing shape in time. And the really uh, exciting thing, uh, more and more, uh, more and more so, but especially recently, um, is that we're getting better and better at doing gas and volcanoes changing shape from space, uh, from satellites orbiting our, our planet. And the really exciting thing about that is that kind of, uh, it changes the game. So it means that you don't have to get boots on the ground anymore to a specific volcano. 
it means that every day you can be looking at uh, lots of different volcanoes all around the world. Um, and if there's one that's, that's of particular interest, then you can particularly focus your efforts in analyzing data from that. Uh, and that really changes things as well in terms of inaccessible volcanoes uh, or volcanoes where there's not a, there's, there's, there's not a, uh, a well-resourced uh, monitoring network in place. So it's, it's really an exciting time to be a volcanologist. Hey, I'm not sure. No fun there then. If you're going to be not having to go to the volcano <laughs> to measure, but you're just using a satellite. I don't, I don't think we'll ever get to the stage where we don't need to have some sort of ground truthing going on. But it, and, and as I say, <laughs> and seismology, seismology remains the thing that we, we, are, we, uh, we have no capability of doing seismology from space. So we still need to, to get to, but, but it, opens up your, uh, it op opens up your opportunities vastly. So you've got all the data then. What do we do with it? How's, how's it used? So you've got, you've got the stuff from the seismology the grass and you've got the stuff from the gases what how do you put it all together what what happens with it well some of the some of them um, i don't i haven't ever worked myself in uh in a volcano observatory but i have visited some and uh you know some of them will have they have different screens you know some of them are centralized so you will have different streams coming in from different volcanoes in the same country for example with different traces showing uh showing all automated data that you have so, as I say, seismometers will often be um, sending their data back to some centralized point so it can be visualized, visualized in, in one room. And then if, if something's sort of kicking off or something looks a bit different at one of the volcanoes, then you might dispatch a team to go and measure gas. Some volcanoes do have automated uh, gas measurement networks around them, but uh, they're less common than, than seismometers. So I think it's, it's, it's watching to see, it's often a sort of watching to see how, if something's changed and if something's changed, then, then you, you would want to go in there with more follow-up. It must be difficult. When we were talking about COVID, there's a leap. The, the politicians quite often say, we're guided by the experts. So when you're a volcanologist and you're the expert, it must be really rather difficult to then be saying, just a minute, I think we're going to have to advise everyone to evacuate. I think, uh, yeah, I think evacuate. I've never had to play a role in, in an evacuation call, but evacuation calls are very difficult to make because if you get it wrong and the volcano doesn't erupt, you kind of lose the faith of your population. Yes. And then people might might decide to return and then the volcano goes. So it, it, I, I do not envy um, the scientists having to make that. Uh, those those sorts of decisions, but of course, it's, it's normally the scientists. It's like uh, in a similar way to COVID. The, the sort of best situation is when you have the scientists giving their best possible advice to politicians, or uh, or, or hazard managers, or city managers, planners, who 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 then can make the best call, thinking about the kind of population in the round, because um, there's a. And, and making a call for an evacuation, it might seem that the precaution of being cautious would be good, and of course it is. But there, there are um, there are problems with people being evacuated too. You know, people are losing their livelihoods. They might not be losing their lives, but their their sources of income, their 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 farms are unattended. Their um, whatever their source of, of livelihood is having to be abandoned. They're having to abandon their homes. 
having to move into so often sometimes quite crowded shelters and you can end up with with problems there in terms of disease spreading and, and things like that. So it's, it's a very multifactorial decision. Uh, and in ongoing, in long-term volcanic crises, there have been some, some very interesting uh, ways um, put together for trying to help with making these very tough decisions. So getting panels of experts together and kind of making probabilistic uh, forecasts about what the what what people think with all the data together is the most most likely next step for the volcano. Will we ever get to a stage? Here's a question: Will we ever get to a stage where you can be certain and say yes, we've got to go, or will there be, always be that um, that measure of doubt? I mean, I never like to say never because uh, I'm hoping that human history stretches before us, uh, although. Of course, there are some existential threats. Um, but I think one thing to remember, and this is something I, I sort of always take pause for thought about when I'm, when I'm at a volcano or looking at, you know, thinking about how it's behaving, is in a funny way, we exist on different time scales. So if you think about the human time scale and, uh, you know, a, a year is, is quite a long time, um, and actually, if you're out of your home, if you've been evacuated, a fortnight is, is really quite a long time. For the volcano, that's in, the, on the, in, in a geological sense, that's not even the beat of an eye, really. You know, it's not even a, <laughs> yes. a blink in time. So, so we, you know, we, we're getting better and better at saying, I think that this, this, this one's ramping up. Uh, but, but people, to be helpful on the human time scale, you kind of want to be able to say, it's going to erupt next Tuesday. And a volcano just doesn't keep a diary in the same way as we do. And actually to be able to say it looks like it's going to erupt in the next 10 years is sort of an, is an achievement in terms of the mashing of our different timescales. But obviously that's not helpful and that's not what we're aiming to do. So I, I, I think we've made, made significant progress and I never like to say never, but I'm always aware of the timescale issue in terms of our human, you know, our human perception and what's a useful timescale for us compared to the, sort of the, the, the way in which many of the forces of the planet are coming together. You mentioned earlier about uh, your latest research, and given that new research is driven by these really quite rapid technological advancements, what are the next scientific questions? What are you, what are you going to be dealing with? What's your next research area and what are your priorities? My priority at the moment is to spend less time sitting in my basement <laughs> and more time in my lab with my team face to face, to be honest. Um, and, uh, and actually, um, you know, we, we've been very lucky in that we've done quite a bit of uh, data collection and field work just before the pandemic, not because we were particularly in, we, we didn't, we, not because we had the gift of foresight, just through luck. Um, we've been out on, uh, you know, this, uh, several of the students have been out on significant field work to Ethiopia and Indonesia and brought back uh, excellent uh, sample sets in collaboration with the local scientists. So we haven't been as impacted by the pandemic in terms of their projects and, and pushing our science forward as, as we could have been. But nonetheless, it has, has had significant impacts on us all. So I, first, uh, first off, I would just say that my, my, my aspirations are really just trying to get my team um, uh, a bit more back to normal. So I know that sounds a bit mundane, but maybe it's something that, you're, that everyone else can, to, can relate to a bit as well. And 
Uh, but there, you know, there are several st strands, and I, I think that we're at an interesting time in many, many different areas. But just to give an example, I think the looking into the deep time record of volcanoes, we're, we're coming up with some interesting um, new ways of of looking at the signals from volcanoes, actually in the sedimentary record, rather than looking at the chunks of lava that they leave behind. So, for example, the chemical element mercury, uh, you might sort of, uh, you, you, might, you might have seen uh, sort of it's this very strange liquid metal. It's quite unusual. It used to be in old thermometers, but I think they've, they've basically been phased out now. When I was at school, there was the excitement when someone broke a thermometer and yes. the, little, the little balls of quicksilver would dart around the bench and we'd have to chase them around with the clear up kit because <laughs> it's pretty, pretty toxic stuff. Um, but, uh, but volcanoes put out mercury as a gas, the metal as a gas, and then eventually it ends up deposited in the, in the sediments. And volcanoes are one of the major, um, the major natural sources of, of, of mercury, the element mercury. So if we could look at spikes of this element in the sedimentary record, our hope is this is going to tell us more about the large igneous provinces and when they were really active, that we can try and tie that together with them. Um, changes in the carbon cycle, changes in biology and things like that, and understand more about that deep, deep time perspective. But there are, lots of, there, are lots of, um, there are lots of problems to kind of sort out in terms of understanding that message. But that's one of the things I'm really excited about, uh, about working on over the next few years. That's been absolutely fascinating talking to you again today. I, I, when we put this podcast out, there are so many resources that we can add in as well as a background to what you've said, because I, I, I watched a couple of your lectures and listened to some of them, the recordings. And we, we'll put in pieces as well that link to what you've been saying, because it's, it's just, for A-level students, this is a, a fascination, but it's on every A-level specification as well. So it, it, this has been really useful. I think if I'd been teaching, there are many aspects of what you've been saying that I would have not just listened to myself, but uh, played it to my A-level students. Thank you very much for a fascinating podcast. It's been a really enjoyable hour. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>